Welcome to the Inspired Women Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Hall, psychology student, wife, and mama four. On this podcast, I share helpful life tips and stories from inspirational women. Warning, sometimes we chat about taboo topics and drop some F-bombs. Thank you for tuning in with me today. Enjoy the episode. Hey everyone, quick trigger warning. We do talk about suicide in this episode. I just wanted to give you a heads up. I hope you find a lot of valuable information in this episode. Um, You know, mental health is very important to me, mental health awareness and ending the stigma around mental health and please uh, listen and share out to people. Uh, So Hopefully we can do the little steps. Everybody can do the little steps we talk about in this episode. All right, thanks. Hey everyone, today I'm here with Samantha, a two-time postpartum anxiety survivor. Samantha pivoted her career in 2020 to become a mental health therapist. That's a hell of a year to pivot your career. (laughs) (laughs) I I know how to pick them, Megan. Trust me, I do, yes. (laughs) After 20 plus years in nonprofit management and eight years as a mental health advocate, Samantha went back to school and earned her master's in clinical counseling psychology. She now works in private practice in Maryland. Her specialty is female and maternal mental health and works with women ages 18 plus through transitions, hormonal challenges, fertility, and the mental load of motherhood. She is passionate about destigmatizing mental health and embracing the struggles of life. There is power in numbers, and those struggling need to remember that they are never alone. Well, I mean, I hope if they're listening to this podcast, they know they're never alone. They know they're never alone. And it, I mean, and that really is the case. Um, you know, let's let's normalize what we are all are going through because we all struggle. Oh, absolutely. I always say, and I've had people obviously argue with me about this, that everybody should see a therapist at some point in time in their (laughs) life, because you don't know what you have going on that you might be struggling with. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I should have definitely seen a therapist long before. And I remember I got a DWI when I was like 21 and the therapist, you know, had to, they have to have a therapist sit you down and see if you have like an addiction problem. And she's right. like, I don't think you have an addiction problem. I think that you have a problem with not saying no. <laughs> and that maybe you should see somebody and talk about that. Well, unfortunately, at the time I was on Medicaid and to get in with a therapist who accepted Medicaid, it was like a several month wait. And I was like, after that, I'm not going to do that. And you know what? If I had just seen a therapist, maybe I would have got the right diagnosis earlier, maybe <laughs> whatever, but I probably wouldn't have met my husband either or have all my children. So, you know, (laughs) you know, and I mean, also Megan, like, look at it as you made a choice back then not to do it. Ask yourself, why beat yourself up now? If you've chosen now, now is the time and now is the right time because maybe you would have started back then and you wouldn't have stuck with it because there was just too much going on. Like therapy can come into your life at different times. And I tell potential clients and current clients, all the time, like therapy is going to work at any point in your life if you want it to work. But if right. it's not at a point in your life that is really, therapy is supposed to be an added benefit. It's not supposed to be an added stress. Yes. Yes. And I've been in therapy since like 2013. Yep. <laughs> um, on and off, I've taken pauses and my current therapists were down to like once a month and we might 
we might just stop all together for now. Mm-hmm. Um, cause she's not seeing anybody in person and I was doing EMDR with her and EMDR okay. is not working over the computer. Sure. Um, that is, that is, yeah. I am not trained in EMDR. However, I'm familiar with it and it is a harder modality to do over, over the computer. That is really one of those that it is more effective when you can be in person. Absolutely. So hopefully when she's vaccinated and I'm finished getting vaccinated, we'll be all good. Um, so we, or we, I, I say we, as if there's like multiple people working on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, though there are multiple people listening. Yes. Hundreds of hundreds of hundreds of people <laughs> listening. Um, so I posted on social media that I was looking for a mental health professional to come on the podcast so we could talk about mental health stigma. Cause honestly, as somebody who has struggled with mental health since I was in single digits, I remember feeling depressed when I was a very young child. Um, and, you know, being diagnosed with bipolar disorder and, you know, all these things, it really, really irks me to see sure. how mental illness is being blamed for everything. Mm-hmm. We like in the last like six months, we've seen, you know, uh, anti-maskers, they're all mentally ill. All the insurrectionists are mentally ill. These people shooting other people, they're all mentally, everything is about mental illness. And I'm like, y'all really don't understand how people with mental health problems are more likely to be victims of you know, violent crimes and all these things than we are to, to actually perpetrate them. Yeah. And and as somebody with bipolar disorder, I'm always hearing people talk about people being bipolar and how unpredictable they are and how dangerous they are and all these things. And I'm just like, (laughs) have you met me? (laughs) Mm -hmm. I mean, I know I'm not the face of bipolar disorder, but you know, all these things really, really irk me. Um, and so I would love to have you share a little, perspective as a mental health professional about this. Um, because honestly, I feel like I'm talking to a wall most of the time. And some days I just want to cry because I'm just like, it just increases the stigma and it's going to make people less likely to seek help so that they're not like grouped in with those dangerous individuals. I'm nobody can see me. I'm air quoting (laughs) dangerous individuals, you know, or, you know, these unstable individuals or these people that, you know, are violent or all these things people say about people with a mental illness when, and when people hear that they're like, I don't want to be part of that. I don't want to be like roped in with these people. So I'm, I'm just going to keep going on and and ignore what's going on with me. And it, it just feeds into the, to the stigma of mental health. So Sure away. <laughs> sure. No. I, and again, Megan, thank you for bringing that up. That is in getting into the mental health field, working to erase the stigma is one of my passions with this. Um, and I will state something. This is my opinion. It's not, um, you know, some people may disagree. However, I do believe everyone struggles at some point in their life. Mm-hmm. Everyone struggles. And the more we can normalize our struggles and recognize that you struggle, I struggle, it's okay to struggle, the more we can open up a universality to have people help support each other rather than be pitted against one another. Yeah. And, you know, I know I shared with you earlier, in addition to therapy, I do um, teaching as well. And in my Psych 101 class, I talk to my students about, look guys, every single one of us has anxiety. 
if we did not have anxiety or a flight or fight response, we would have been eaten by creatures a long time ago. It is a survival mechanism. So instead of looking at some of your struggles as negatives, let's flip that script and look at struggles as positives. I give the analogy to students and I use this with clients sometime. If you are someone who struggles with depression, so you have some down days, let's say, or a, a down mood, there is help, there is treatment available, there is treatment available that works that can help you get better and keeping everything into perspective. So I use an analogy a lot of times of, Megan, can you see outside of your window, can you see a tree or did you pass a tree today? Oh, I mean, who hasn't? <laughs> right. Okay. So what does that tree need to survive? Water, sunshine. Water and sunshine. And so carbon monoxide. Car dioxide. Water, sunshine, and carbon monoxide. <laughs> if that tree got rain 365 days of the year, would the tree thrive? Not an average tree. If the tree got sun 365 days of the year, would the tree thrive? Not an average tree. I say average because I'm sure somewhere in the world there's a tree. That, that would exactly. And I, you know, I lived in Arizona where on average there's 340 days of sunshine and my <laughs> husband is from Seattle where on average there's, there's a lot of gray. But yeah. the, the point being is that we need the sunshine and the rain to thrive. And so rather than looking at these as struggles, looking at these as pieces of what make our puzzle unique and our puzzle whole and make us work and thrive. And there are times in our lives where just like a tree, you might need extra sunshine or you might need some extra rain. And if that is what you need from a mental health perspective, let's normalize it to a, that is what I need rather than, a, oh, I can't talk about that because I'm going to be stigmatized in a certain way. Right. Yeah. No, I agree. And it's funny. I've, I've read some uh, research about how mental illnesses kind of started out as defense mechanisms and then over time morphed into these things that aren't exactly productive. <laughs> so, you know, I, a lot of times, and I say this to people, I was like, depression is like my best friend and my worst enemy because it's been with me my as long as I can remember I've always felt depression since like I said single digits and people are like that that's impossible I'm like no serious <laughs> yeah. um but it's my best friend because it's been there so long my worst enemy because it doesn't exactly help me thrive you know I've had crippling depression where I can I can barely function um so sometimes it actually helps because it's nice because then I'm like, I have a reason to slow down and like kind of, you know, center myself. And then there's sometimes that it's just not, not at all helpful. Not helpful <laughs> not today. No, not helpful. So the way you put it, it would be like, you know, sometimes those things allow us to slow down or speed up. I have bipolar disorder or speed up yep. <laughs> and get things accomplished. But sometimes they it's too much. There's just too much and it doesn't help. Yep. And, you know, I am a firm believer in no matter how hard we try, we're not going to be able to outrun or outsmart our mind. So what I mean by that is 
you can, as much as you want, say, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. The more you do that and the more you tamp down your emotions, they're going to come out eventually. Maybe they're not going to come out tomorrow. Maybe they're not going to come out next week. Maybe they're not going to come out next month, but they will come out eventually. And so just that power process of just naming and accepting of our emotions and where we are can really go a far way in, I think, the acceptance of mental health as a priority, because you cannot have excellent physical health without excellent mental health. The, it's, they're intertwined. So if you're going to only focus on your body and not your mind, you're never going to be able to get into peak shape or peak performance. Yeah. I mean, I was a, a fitness uh, coach at one point in time. And I will tell you, it was a very unhealthy time. People looking out, they were like, oh my gosh, she's so fit. And she's so skinny. Yep. It was an obsessive yes. like thing. I'd gotten to an obsessive and it wasn't, I was burnt. I was, um, I was burnt out. Mm. I, you know, couldn't focus. I, I mean, I had all these and my mental health was probably in the, like one of the worst times. Mm-hmm. of my life because it, you're right. You know, I wasn't working on my mental health at the time. Um, I was only solely focused on the physical and I actually took that physical to make me forget about the mental. <laughs> so it became sort of an addiction for me, yep. the fitness, like the really, like really uber healthy eating and the overworking out, like, um, so it, it became this, this thing I focused on to take my mind off of things, uh, off of anything else that felt, um, you know, maybe a little uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. There's, and there's a lot of uncomfortable uh, things through therapy that I've discovered that I've been through <laughs> that I didn't want to deal with. Um, so pivoting a little bit when it comes to stigma, when it comes to, mental illness and the way we talk about it. One of my frustrations is coming from the way people talk about it, right? People will be like, oh, the weather is bipolar or I'm OCD because they like things in a neat way or stuff. That's just a minor irritation. But then we get to, I actually got an argument with on Facebook with somebody who was like, this world is suffering from a massive mental illness. And I'm like, can we not say that kind of thing? I was like, because to somebody who actually who is, is yeah, mm-hmm. struggling with this, that's, that's offensive that you think like, and it was in the context of like racism. And I was like, you're going to tell me somebody is racist because they're mentally ill. Like I'm mentally ill. I'm not racist. I'm like, so we have all these things where people are trying to, they're, they're trying to make sense of what's going on, or they're trying to excuse it by saying it's a mental illness. When it's, I mean, am I saying that it's impossible? No, because one in four people (laughs) struggle with a mental illness in their lifetime. So is it possible that somebody with racism has a mental illness? Yes. Is it possible that somebody that um, commits a mass murder has a mental illness? Absolutely. But it's the opposite's not true, that everybody who's racist has a mental illness or everybody who, you know, commits a mass shooting or everybody that has a undesirable behavior or behavior that we think is wrong or that we just want to excuse in some way or make sense of it has a mental illness. And this is where my frustration is stemming from as somebody with one, because I'm like, I know I've come in contact through the podcast and through my lifetime with 
tons of people who have a mental illness. And I, because I speak so openly about it, people have talked to me about their struggles because they felt comfortable doing so. And I will tell you, majority of those people don't fall into any of these boxes that, that people are trying to put us in. Right. And so that's my, my biggest frustration right now is the way people are talking about it. Um, which frustrates somebody like me who, who's already well aware. I'm, I'm a mental health advocate. I have my own mental health struggles, but what is that do to the people who don't aren't, who aren't already getting that help, you know? And, and what does that say to the world and how we think of mental health as a whole? And, you know, people talk about mental health, but they're talking about, I meditate and I take a bath and, and those are great things. I'm not downplaying them. But mental health is so much deeper. It is so much deeper. And I think, you know, you bring up a good point of taking a bath, meditating, natural. That may work for some people and that may not work for all people. So here's, again, my perspective from a mental health perspective is we're all individuals and we all need to be treated as individuals. So what is going to work? You know, you have shared and you're very open with your bipolar disorder. It's what works for you to help you thrive may not be what works for somebody else. And just the fact that you are open with it and can show others that you can have this and thrive provides hope. Yeah. Provides hope that there is a way to put all of those puzzle pieces together. So how do we change as a society? Well, those listening, because I can't change the whole damn society, but I can hopefully the people listening, how can we change our our verbiage and, and, you know, our rhetoric around mental health to combat these really horrible and offensive things people are saying about people with mental health disorders. And I feel like depression and anxiety have become more acceptable. Mm -hmm. Um, Those are things that are talked about and people don't shun it as much and they're not as stigmatized as they used to, but then you get to somebody like me who has bipolar disorder Um, And that is a very stigmatized disorder. And that's usually the one that they go to when they're blaming all these bad things, right? People have bipolar disorder or schizophrenia, or like they start throwing out all these like, quote unquote, severe mental illnesses to blame for all these things. So not saying that, I mean, depression, anxiety, obviously, and still some circles are stigmatized. How do we change our our verbiage and our rhetoric around mental health so this we can combat the stigma? We can combat these things people are saying. Mm-hmm. No, I again, I think you bring up a really great point, and I actually work with my students on this. We talk about this. Um, we talk about that stigmatizing of our language and the power of our language. And I give them those examples, the ones that you just said of like, oh, I'm so bipolar today, or oh, my OCD is coming out. And we talk about the weight behind our words and that our words matter. So to say you're OCD, well, do you have a diagnosis of OCD? Do you know what OCD is? Do you actually know what OCD looks like? Like if you actually have OCD, do you know what it looks like? If you have bipolar, do you know what that looks like? And then that reminder of just because you have these 
labels, let's call them, or diagnoses, it doesn't mean that you can or cannot do something. So I use this as Anna Lynn McCord. I don't know um, if you're familiar with her. She is a actress in Hollywood. She came out with multiple personality disorder, um, which Which is super stigmatized. People say it's not even a true thing. Yes. And now she's, um, it's officially called dissociative identity disorder now. Um, but previously it was known as multiple personality disorder. She's speaking out about it to say, look, I've been on, you know, a ton of TV shows and movies and I'm struggling with this and it's not, she's learning to accept it. And so part of it, I think Megan comes from those of us who struggle with some of this, it's the acceptance and then a willingness to help educate that just because you are labeled in this way or you have this diagnosis, it does not mean X, Y, and Z. What it does mean is it's a part of you and maybe there are some accommodations that need to be made and that's okay. But it doesn't mean that you need to be held back because of it. And, and, you know, I think people don't take the time to understand these things, right? Yeah. Um, Because they see what they see on TV or, you know, basically on TV, that's what they're thinking. And when, you know, when this is portrayed like dissociative identity, identity disorder, uh, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, they're not portrayed in ways that just show you like what the normal day to day to somebody, right. you know, with these disorders, it's like extreme examples of these disorders. Um, and I actually read a book uh, from a college professor and, and I don't have it off the top of my head, but I'll link in the show notes where she has schizophrenia and she talks in the book about like her, like going through, like she's a lawyer, like she's a this law Ellen Sachs? maybe she's a lawyer and a professor now at USC. She does a very powerful Ted talk about this. I think that might be her. I think that might be her. And I read her book um, and she talks about her struggles with schizophrenia going through law school and like not wanting to say anything to anybody because she didn't want to be stigmatized. She didn't want to lose opportunities and all the struggles she had. And I felt like that was like a really real portrayal of what somebody with schizophrenia is going through yes. versus like these sensationalized, televised, you know, fake basically um, experiences that they're trying to take these. I feel like Hollywood takes these like these parts of a diagnosis, like the really extreme parts, which most people do not experience all the extreme parts of a diagnosis and they just run with it. Um, and it's very dangerous and can be very hurtful to people because that's yep. what people see and that's what they base it on. Um, so yeah. And I've read tons of books about people with DID, like tons of books where, I mean, it's just not what's portrayed and yeah. people, there are people out there, people try to make it out like these these mental health disorders are all like crippling and and you're not gonna be able to function. And I try to explain one, there's a spectrum when it comes to mental illness, right? From like- Everything is on a spectrum. Yeah. Um, And each mental illness is on a spectrum. And and like you said, what I experience 
will not be what somebody else with bipolar disorder will experience. Mm-hmm. Um, my depression won't be the same as somebody else with depression. Like it's, it's all different. And I, and I think people fail to, to recognize that it, it's not exactly what you, what you think it is, right? Like what somebody automatically thinks these things are. And it's dangerous to talk like that because then I'm stigmatized, right? Like as an individual, I, I think about um, a couple months ago, like a nine-year-old, uh, she was having a mental health crisis and she was tased by the police. And it it broke my heart because I was like, that could have been me. That could have been me. It could be my kid. My son has ADHD and it before he was on medication, he'd have anger outbursts. And there was no there was no talking to him. There was no trying to get him to like cooperate with you. Like none of these things that could have been my kid, you know? And I, and I think a lot of like the stigma and the, the, the rhetoric around mental health is, is feeding into these things. Yep. No, I, I, um, I concur with that. And look, incidences of mental illness are up three, four, five fold in this last year through what we're experiencing as a world with this pandemic and as a country and a world with some of the racial injustice that's going on and a racial reckoning in a lot of ways, we're seeing, I don't treat in my practice, I don't treat kids. That's not my area of expertise. It's not my area of specialty. And anecdotally, I've heard the number of children that are struggling right now the more we can start to normalize it, the better it will be for that six or seven-year-old that is struggling right now, that by the time they are in their early forties, it can just become part of the normal colloquia. It's not that, oh, they're the odd person out for struggling. We're more in this, by the time that they're in their forties, it's more acceptable to say, you know what? Like I do struggle sometimes. I don't struggle all the time and this doesn't define me and it is a part of me. Yeah. No, I agree. Um, that's why uh, my son just stopped therapy. He was in therapy for over a year and, and we gotten to the point where we're like, it's really, it, it wasn't that it wasn't doing anything for him. It's just, he really didn't need it anymore. Yep. And he was like, oh, I'm really sad that I'm ending this and I'll never be in therapy again. I'm like, nobody, you could be in therapy like five years from now. Like yep. there's never a time that you have to stop. You can go back when you need a little help and then you would stop and you might go back again. And, and, and the therapist said, you know, you're creating a foundation for your children that they see this as normal and just part yes. of their health, Yes, which is what we need to do. Because a lot of people don't seek therapy until things are so bad. But if we can just nip it at the bud when things start to, we see like, oh, I'm not quite functioning (laughs) at my highest level. I think I need some help. Um, And we go and do that. And now I know that there's a discussion about how mental health care needs to be more affordable and, and, you know, how we, it needs to be covered on. We could do a whole podcast on that, Megan. (laughs) We absolutely could. But, and, and what you said is like my son, when he's 40, he might come across something and be like, you know, I'm going to go back and see a therapist now. Um, but we need to set our kids up for success now. Um, we need to see it as one accessible, but also affordable. But I wrote a paper on, 
the barriers to mental health, the top three barriers to mental health were affordability, access, and stigma. Yeah. Stigma was a huge one. So even if you have the affordability and the access, you may not, you know, actually seek mental health um, help. And you don't have to have a mental illness to see a therapist. <laughs> you know? No, you don't. You don't. You could just be, you don't have to see, you don't have to um, have a diagnosed mental illness to see a therapist. Maybe you're going through a hard time. Maybe you're grieving. Maybe um, there are a whole section of therapists and counselors out there that do career counseling. Maybe you yeah. just need an unbiased party to bounce things off of. Yeah. All of that is okay. Or maybe you just went through, you know, a traumatic worldwide event that is a pandemic. Yes. <laughs> yes. Maybe, maybe this year has just gotten to you. Yeah. I mean, I, I sometimes cry in my shower when I'm listening to podcasts and I start talking about the pandemic, like, I know we're in it, but I'm talking about like the very beginning, you know, yes. of things. And I just start crying and I'm like, where did that come from? <laughs> but we, we're, we've gone through a collective trauma because well, we have experienced this last year for everyone, even for those who say I've never been through a trauma or I've never had anything traumatic happen to me. It may not be a big T when we talk about trauma. This may, this year may not have been a big T for you, but everyone to some level has gone through a trauma. So whether you have children, whether you don't have children, whether you, um, you know, are able to work from home or not able to work from home life as we knew it pre pandemic has changed in some facet for everyone. And that change and the speed at which that change occurred is traumatic. Yeah. I mean, overnight, practically like we knew, I remember being at work. Uh, my, my job that I lost <laughs> now I have a new job. I remember being at work and talking to my coworkers and we're talking about it. And my one coworker, her, her um, dad actually lived in Wuhan, China. So she was freaking out. She was just like, I'm worried about my dad. Like I'm worried something is going to happen to him. And then some other coworkers freaking out. And she's like, I'm so worried that we're all going to get sick and die. I'm like, yeah. oh, it's not here yet. It's, it's not here. We'll combat it. It won't even get here. If it gets here, they'll stop it. And then I'm like, a couple months later, work shutting down, school shutting, everything shutting down. I'm like eating my words, like, oh my God, like this was way worse than we were even than we imagined. Yeah. And then, you know, everything's selling out and my husband was deployed and all these things were going on all at once. And I'm like, this is wild. And, um, and I, I considered myself privileged because I had access to all the things, right. Me losing my job did not mean I, I lost housing did not mean I lost, right. you know, I couldn't afford to eat like all these things. They didn't, I was not impacted in the same way other people were, but like you said, everybody experienced this, they experienced it in different degree. ways, but in some degree they were impacted by this. It may still be impacted. It's not over yet. Um, but Anyways, off topic, <laughs> our nope. pandemic trauma. And it kind of all, you know, I mean, again, I think it all weaves together because of the trauma and because of what happened this last year. I think the more that we can normalize that if you are struggling right now, you are not alone. There is help available. A lot of people are struggling right now. The, the more that, again, we can just normalize that conversation and normalize our abilities, um, to struggle 
I think the the greater universality and really in the uh, in the end the greater hope that would be out there for people. Right. What I mean, I I've heard I, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I'm a podcast junkie. A lot of them uh, have ad- advertisements, which I don't do. But um, a lot of them have advertisements, and a lot of it has been like for better better help, which is like the online therapy pr- platform and all these things, and talking about how like the pandemic might be you know, impacting you in certain ways. And you might need the, you know, to talk with somebody about that. And it does not mean that like, there's something wrong with you. We all have to talk to somebody every once in a while. And And like you said, it does not have to be trauma. It doesn't have to be, you know, the, the big traumas that people think of, you know, it could be something like you, you lost a loved one to COVID. That's a traumatic thing. Like, you know, you couldn't see them. You were having to FaceTime with them to say goodbye. Like, you know, all these things that are going on. And, you know, if it wasn't for this mental health stigma, maybe more people would be seeking help right now. I could not agree with you more. Um, and then on the flip side of that, you know, with my therapy hat, um, we're full. We were just talking about this where I work. We were talking about this in a team meeting today. Many mental health therapists are, are full right now because of the demands to come and to come and talk. And I think that that, you know, I think that is, um, I think we can look at that in two ways. One, people are struggling right now. And two, hopefully those who weren't comfortable before reaching out are getting more comfortable with it. And I'm, you know, I'm also struck with, I think you asked what is one of the, or what are some of the things that we could start to do to destigmatize the mental, um, the mental health illness or, um, or things around it. Two ideas, Megan, that I think are twofold part of normalization with that in society means that we're folding it into all areas of our life. So you at home may talk about it with your children or your family members and normalize it. And if they go into a school or a workplace that isn't supportive of it, they're getting shut down in that way. So I admire the bosses that encourage or the corporations that encourage mental health days. Yeah. Because guess what? We all need them. Yeah. I admire the schools that say, let's talk about this so that if you are struggling, we can catch maybe some of those struggles earlier. And I think the more that we can also infiltrate those notions into those places that we frequent quite often, the more comfortable people will be um, sharing some of their struggles and recognizing that, you know what, just because I have X, Y, or Z diagnosis does not mean that I cannot be a good and valued employee or a good and appreciated employee or a good student. Yeah. I mean, there's been time right now I'm waiting for answers on master programs. And I'm like, I was super honest in my, um, in my little like write up that they asked for and talking about uh-huh. my mental health struggles. And this is why I went into, want to get into this line of work. Yeah, exactly. And then of course, then part of me is like, what if I was too honest? <laughs> like, because there's always that question, right? Because 
um, people with um, mental health struggles have experienced that. I remember my last yes. job, I have um, the semicolon on my wrist. And, and for people who aren't familiar, just Google the semicolon project. It's about suicide awareness, mental health awareness. And she was I a remember- friend of mine who started that. So, oh, look at you. <laughs> We are talking to a celebrity. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> but I have this semicolon on my wrist. And I remember my boss, like my manager going, that that tattoo on your wrist, she's like, I don't think it, I thought it meant something else. And I was like, what do you mean? You didn't even ask me what it meant. And she was just like, um, I thought it meant something about suicide. I was like, it does. And she was like, well, why, why would you want that on your wrist? And I was like, all right, I don't care if I lose my job over this. <laughs> to me, I had that privilege to be like, whatever you fire me. It's fine. I don't care. And so I was really honest with her about my mental health struggles and her face. Like she just could not control the shock in her face. Yeah. Um, and I'm telling her all these things. And I told her, you know, about my suicide attempt um, and about the suicidal ideation I've had and her face just like, it kept getting worse. And, um, she, at, at the end, she's like, how could you do that to your family? And I was like, it's not really a choice. I wasn't just like, oh, you know, I was like, I actually thought they'd be better off without me. I thought it was a burden yep. on them. I'm um, sorry to hear that you've struggled with that. Thank you. I, it was last, last time my attempt was in 2013. Last time I had any ideation, it's probably sometime last year, but it wasn't like a plan. Like people don't understand is like, you can think like, I want to die. I don't know if I belong here anymore, but it doesn't become a plan. So it's just kind of a thought. Um, so like there's many levels to suicidal ideation, right? My, my therapist is always like, do you have a plan? And I'm like, no, I don't have a plan. (laughs) I was just crying in my shower and I don't know why. Um, but it was last year. Uh, that was the last time my, my mood stabilizers have been doing really well for me lately. Good. I'm happy to hear that. Um, but her face, right. That Mm -hmm. stigma. That stigma with it. Yep. Yeah. Her question of how could you do that? And I'm like, you aren't even trying to understand right now. Like what I went through. And I was just like, I, I was just like, I, I just told her, I was like, listen, I wasn't, I, I wasn't in the frame of mind to be like, well, what could this do to other people? I was like, I thought yeah. it was a burden. I thought the world would be better off without me. I was like, I wasn't, I was, I felt so empty and it's so weird to say so empty, but also in so much pain at the same time. Yeah. And she just couldn't understand. She just kind of walked away and stopped talking to me. And she treated me differently from that on. Like she never treated me the same way again. Yes. Um, and so I, and that's hard too. I'm, I'm really sorry to hear that you've experienced that too, because again, you were brave enough to come forward with your struggles. Let's celebrate that and not shame it. Right. And, 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 the, the whole point with me sharing that was because you were talking about how like some workplaces are really super accepting and they allow you to take mental health days. And, and when I was working there, like we didn't have what was called mental health days, but you could earn personal days, like the longer yep. you work there. 
Um, which I was like, man, if I, you know, I was talking to my coworker and I'm like, man, if I worked here long enough to go into those personal days, sometimes I just need it. Cause I'm just not mentally prepared to come to work. And we, and, you know, we joked around, my coworkers weren't like judgmental of my mental health struggles. Actually, someone felt quite comfortable opening up because I did to me, not to our manager, obviously, but I feel like that needs to be more of a thing in a workplace because people will come they'll come forward, they'll say something and then they'll get shut down by like their, their manager or, you know, the owner or their coworkers and then never want to say anything again if they're struggling. Yeah. So yeah, I, and like you said, you're, you're just, you're shut down then. Yeah. And I feel like that, like you were talking about, that is something that we need to work on as a society too, is, you know, maybe, we all think like, oh, I can't do anything. There's so much that needs to be do to be done. And there's so it's so big and it's so much. It's these little, little steps, right? It's it's being mindful of our, our language around mental health. No longer just throwing around mental health disorders like like they're no big deal, right? Like mm-hmm. feeling sad and be like, I'm so depressed today. <laughs> Which we've all we've all been guilty of saying these things at some point in time in yeah. our lives, right? Yes. Be mindful of that, not blaming things that aren't related to a mental illness on a mental illness, not just assuming somebody has to have a mental illness to have these things happen, but also these little conversations we have because somebody that, that I'm friends with on Facebook shared the person you're talking about, like, I don't know, it was some celebrity that they were talking about mental health. Oh, it was um, Megan Markle Okay, talking about her mental health struggles. And they're like, Megan Markle is not hearing what you're saying about her mental health struggles, but the people in your lives who are struggling with mental health are, are hearing what you're saying about her. Yeah. yeah. And they're not going to feel comfortable coming forward and talking to you because you're saying these things we're watching. We see all the things people are posting. I know who's safe to talk to and who's not safe to talk to. I've actually had to delete people because of the obnoxious yep. things they've said about my diagnosis. Like, no, I'm good. Um, but like the coworkers, right? Your friends, your family member, being a safe place for them to talk to you and discuss these things and have sometimes just having somebody to, to listen to you yes. without judgment. Um, and, you know, and, and, and being prepared with that question is like, what, what do you need from me? Do you want a listening ear? Do you need some advice? What is it that you need from me? Because sometimes people just want to vent and be like, this sucks. I hate this. <laughs> and then sometimes they're really looking for like support and for somebody to encourage them to seek help. So it those might seem like little tiny things, but I feel like they all add up where you're making an impact. Because think about it like the, you know, the butterfly effect. <laughs> One little ripple can, you know, impact yeah. the world. Yep. Um, and you know, that's how I feel. I always say whenever I share my story, I'm like, if it just helps one person, that's, that's all that if matters it, to me. If it just helps one person. And before I got into this field professionally, when I was doing mental health advocacy, that was one of the biggest drivers for me. And a friend had told me this years ago that my struggle could be someone else's survival guide. Mm-hmm. And I looked at that and you know, I'm, I am very open, um, that I did struggle with postpartum anxiety after the birth of, um, really after the birth of both my children, but, um, quite severely after the birth of my first. And it was the women who helped me and showed me that it is dark right now and it is hard and there's a way through. I used other stories as my survival guide. And so I think the more that we can 
again, like we've talked about, Megan, kind of talk about your struggles, normalize those struggles, show that just because you have this, you're not different and you're not flawed and that there is help available. That could be someone else's survival guide. Yeah, absolutely. Stories are so powerful. That's one of the reasons I do this podcast. Yes. (laughs) Is to share stories and hopefully help somebody with that. Um, But before we wrap up, because the time goes by super fast, what would you like to leave the Inspired Women audience with when it comes to mental health, when it comes to stigma? I mean, we could literally talk on this subject for hours and hours and hours. Um, And I've done lots of mental health episodes that people can revisit. Um, and check that out. There's a whole category of mental health. Thank now, you for shining a light on something that really does need its light shown on. I mean, all I could think was like, if I had grown up, grown up in a household where it was more accepting and my parents didn't make comments like that person got sent to the loony bin. Yep. Or if you do that, you're going to be sent to the loony bin or that psycho or that, you know, crazy bitch, like all these yep. things, all these words my parents used to describe people who had mental health struggles. Um, like my dad had an addiction problem and he went where they treat the addiction is the mental health. Um, they were always talking about, I'm from upstate New York. They were always talking about people getting sent to Ogdensburg because Ogden, Ogdensburg, New York, there is a mental health facility. And my dad had to go there for addiction. And he was like, I didn't belong there when I was there. Cause you had all these crazy people. I wasn't crazy. Like all these things that growing up I internalized and I never felt comfortable talking about these things. And when I got my bipolar di- diagnosis and I told my mom, I, that's when I had a relationship with her. She yep. said, Oh, we always knew something was off with you. We just thought that was just you. And I'm like, you saw me struggle for all that time and nobody yeah. did anything. Like my mom overdosed when I was a kid And it just got shoved under the rug, like no big deal. She went, she stayed in the hospital and she came home. Everything was fine. Everything's not fine. It's still not fine to this day. But like my parents and my family didn't talk about mental health. I didn't know my great grandfather had hung himself until I was an adult. And we were just, they just happened to be talking about it. And I'm like, don't you think that this history of mental health should have been like shared and explained. Yep. I'm not saying when I'm five, I should have known it, but I should have known it before I was like in my mid twenties that, you know, and I've been mid twenties, like my thirties, I was like 30, close to 30 when I found out because I was talking about my mental health struggles with my grandmother. And she was just like, oh yeah, we've had, you know, struggles in our family. We've had this and this. And I'm like, that's something that should have been talked about, but instead it was stigmatized and it was swept under the rug. And I never felt comfortable seeking help because I thought that's just what crazy people do. And so I wish I had these kind of conversations. And that's why I'm open because I'm hoping that by me sharing and talking about these things that other people will, and they'll, they'll hear me talking about how I share with my kids. And I say, Hey mom was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and they don't under, they're nine. They don't understand what that is. But I'm like, sometimes I feel really down and empty and I really don't want to do anything. And sometimes I have lots and lots of energy and I want to do all the things, (laughs) but mommy takes this medication to help her be able to not go to the extremes. Mm -hmm. And then it made it acceptable. My son had to take his ADHD medication. Like, oh, mom takes her medication. I, I just take mine too. Um, so the reason I share and the reason I talk about it is because I want 
people not to have struggled the way I did. Yeah. I want people to seek the help. And I'm also hoping that people will hear these kind of things and change their language and change their mindset around these things. So maybe their kids will seek help when they're struggling. Yep. So yep. yeah, that's my long <laughs> winded <laughs> reason. No, Megan, I think that, you know, I think that, that it, it's so important. You asked what would I want to kind of leave with? I want to leave with two, well, three things. First with what you brought up, we put such an emphasis on what is our history of physical health. So is there heart disease in your family? Is there cancer in your family? Is there high blood pressure, cholesterol? You know, you get all of those questions. We're getting better. We're not there yet, but clinicians are getting better about asking the, is there a history of mental illness in your family? Mm -hmm. Because if there is, it can save a lot of heartache later on. It can help explain some things. So I do believe that the more open families can be about struggles, because as we started this podcast, everybody struggles to some degree. You may not struggle enough for it to be a diagnosable mental illness. And again, what constitutes the difference between a diagnosis and a struggle? That could be its own podcast. Yes. (laughs) And everyone struggles to some degree. So the more that we can normalize those struggles and normalize what it was in your history maybe the less jarring it might be if it comes to you and you start to struggle. So thank you for being so open with your children. My husband and I are very open with our kids about, you know, the different struggles that, that we have in life. So, um, uh, it is my hope that we start to normalize our mental health history. Like we normalize our physical history. And then the other two things that I'll leave with is if you are struggling, you are not alone. You truly are not alone. I start all of my psychology one-on-one classes. I always do a check-in with my students and I say, guys, how we feel and guarantee you that no matter your emotion, happy, sad, frustrated, angry, anxious, depressed, someone else in that class, in this class right now shares that emotion. So who wants to name it for us today? So knowing that you're not alone. And then third, as you're talking about these things, never underestimate the power of planting a seed. So never underestimate that you may not see the change from your advocacy or your words overnight, but never underestimate that someone is listening, that it's planted a seed. And someday that's going to be their survival guide when they're struggling. Absolutely. I have people reach out to me every time I share and are like, thank you. And sometimes it's the same person. That's just like, I needed to hear that today. Thank you so much. Yes. And actually I have at least two people I know who have now been diagnosed with bipolar disorder because they saw themselves in my story. So got the proper, both were misdiagnosed with major depressive disorder. Like I was and got the right diagnosis because I shared. Um, And so sometimes that can be the thing. And, and, you know, like you said, diagnosis is a label, but sometimes that can help guide treatment that yep. will help us be able to be stable and function. Right. If I, yep. before I was misdiagnosed with major depressive disorder and the kind of treatments they tried to use on me did not work. They actually made me worse. Um, but once I got the right diagnosis yes. and we started on the mood stabilizers, we saw significant improvement and those, they just kept like increasing my medication dosage until we've gotten to the point now where it feels like, all right, I think I'm, I think I'm good right now. <laughs> I think I'm good for now. Um, so that sort of thing can really help somebody as well. Yep. 
So thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Megan, thank you for having me. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. I hope it's helpful. Thank you for being a part of the Inspired Women audience. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating review. And don't forget to share this out with somebody who could use some inspiration today. Tag us at Inspired Women Podcast, both on Facebook and Instagram. Have a great day.